Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Man, things are crazy, crazy in all the best ways. Um, Just got back from another spurt of traveling. Um, Getting real, real close to launching my new second podcast with my dear friend Aaron called Whore Rapport. Uh, We were uh, hanging out in the Bay Area last week. We recorded a bunch of episodes, uh, just finishing up on a couple of last-minute things, and that should be out in the world for real very soon. If you haven't listened to the introductory episode that I recorded with her on my podcast, we actually released that as a horror rapport episode as well. So if you just go to your podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts and type in horror rapport, that's horror, uh, which I hope you know how to spell, and rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. That'll give you a pretty good introduction about what the show's going to be about and who we are. Um, We recorded an official first episode as well. Uh, Second episode is going to be about sexual orientation, and the third one is going to be about um, masculinity and femininity, I believe. We recorded that episode, and we're thinking we might want to record a second part and just release them at the same time because, my God, is that topic complicated and um, nuanced. All the best topics are. Um, and what else is going on? Um, going to be back in LA for a little while, at least. I feel like I say that every time I come back and record a new episode and then I'm off somewhere else, but alas, um, today, uh, I'm really excited about this episode. Um, oh, the unfortunate news too. I was up in San Francisco and the plan was to record an episode with Francis Weller, which I've talked a lot about. He wrote this beautiful, beautiful book about grief called The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Um, But for those of you that don't know, basically all of California was on fire last week, uh, everywhere from L.A. to Santa Cruz and Northern California. Uh, So we were set to record, but all of Marin County had no power. Um, And uh, Francis was evacuated, which having been evacuated for nine days last year, I could relate. Um, So hopefully we'll be able to reschedule that. If we need to do it remotely, I'm just going to do that because I'm itching to have a conversation with him. I was really, really bummed out. It didn't work out for us to meet in person. Um, But alas, uh, I am not in charge of the world and the weather. Um, Yeah, it was weird, though. I feel like every year 
around this time, living in California at least, it's just like, oh, here we are, this like weird post-apocalyptic world with everyone wearing masks and there's no power and the air smells like smoke and it's just a very strange, strange situation. Um, but thankfully I was hanging out with good friends. Aaron lives on a sailboat. So we thought, well, at the very least, if the world goes up in flames, I think we'll be okay on the water. <laughs> Just sail off and hope for the best. Um, but all that to say, I am really excited to bring you today's episode with Sasha Sagan, um, who is Carl Sagan's daughter, who just came out with a beautiful book for small creatures such as we. Um, and I have a couple of other really exciting uh, podcasts planned to release as well. So hopefully to get hopefully getting back into the swing of things a bit, releasing things more frequently. Um, Horror rapport has definitely taken up some of my attention. Uh, but as I've said before, quality over quantity. Um, today in the introduction, I wanted to speak about something that I talk about a lot, uh, that came up again in this episode that you'll hear with Sasha, which is about nuance and ambiguity and what I feel is pretty much humanity's large incapacity to embrace either one. Um, and specifically I wanted to talk uh, as I have a bit before, but sort of clarify and condense thoughts that I've had around um, nuance in terms of relational needs and codependency and uh, desire. I've seen, uh, and I, disclaimer, I have no judgment toward anyone's decision. And this whole point of this conversation is that all of these things are very nuanced. Um, and so what that means is that two things can be true simultaneously. Um, but what I like to do on the show is to kind of express the maybe less popular opinion, the less popular truth, uh, to sort of coincide with the sort of truth and conventional thought process that I see playing out in the public sphere. Um, and also because this particular aspect of nuance and ambiguity, I myself personally have dealt with quite a bit and also witnessed other people dealing with. Um, and it has to do with a couple of different things, but specifically this idea, you know, when I first sort of started coming into awareness about myself and my patterns and my history and my family trauma and my relational structures, you know, codependency was something that was thrown around quite a bit and that I related to and that I embraced. Um, and, and codependency can be very loosely defined in my mind. It's just like a pattern that you engage in relationally that can have some effects that don't serve you in a healthy way that you repeat over and over and over again. Codependency, I think, is also often misunderstood as the need for or desire for intimacy and relationship. I definitely conflated these two things and having been someone that was sort of in nonstop relationships all the time, um, when I finally sort of broke out of that pattern, my immediate inclination was do to do the 180 degree um, correction, which was to not be in relationship, not correct the patterns within the relationships that I was in, but just avoid them entirely. And yes, I think part of that was necessary for me and is necessary often for us to even understand and comprehend and sort of digest 
uh, metabolize what the problems are. But I think we often get stuck in that sort of 180 degree reflection. Um, I think where the magic happens and where the healing happens is when we sort of complete the circle. So if you think about like, okay, I was in this relationship, there was like all these toxic patterns, I keep doing this. And so the 180 degree reaction is get out of the relationship, stop needing that, stop needing that type of dynamic and that pattern in order to feel whole. Okay, cool. I'm out of that. I've reflected on what that pattern is. But in my mind, the actual healing doesn't take place until you re-enter that same situation that you got out of in a different way and you rewrite the pattern. So sure, I was in a relationship, relationships, there were these patterns, I got out of it, I realized what the patterns were, I got back into that space and tried to reteach and reparent myself in order to not repeat those things. Definitely doesn't mean that you can't go back and like, oh, fuck, here I am again. I need to get out and go back in again. Um, it also doesn't mean that in the space of a more healthy, supportive relational dynamic that those same types of patterns are going to come out. They should. Um, and obviously, if you're in a safe place with a loving, supportive person that you're able to bring those things out, make those things known, uh, sort of regurgitate them and work on together creating a new pattern. Um, but it, it, it upsets me sometimes because I think there's a lot of like rhetoric that I see going around these days of like, I'm going to take a vow of celibacy or I'm going to not be in a relationship or I'm going to not, you know, engage with people of the opposite sex or the same sex, whoever you have relationships with for an extent for this period of time. And I'm going to take this time and I'm going to detox and I'm going to this, that, and the other. And I totally did that uh, in May of last year um, after several really frustrating uh, relationship, toxic, frustrating situations. I did the exact same thing. I said, for two years, I'm not going to be in a relationship. I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to figure my shit out. And only once I reach a certain level of self-awareness and self-knowing am I going to re-enter back into that type of a situation. And what I realized partially with help from my therapist was she basically looked at me and said, you know, there is no level of self-awareness. You don't like reach a point. There's no threshold in which some green light's going to go off and you're going to be like, okay, I'm ready to go back in. That doesn't mean that I should the next day or the next week or the next two weeks go back into a toxic situation or go back into a situation or start a new situation that's going to repeat the same patterns. But to think that we can or should have that level of control over our lives and the universe at large, in my opinion, is wildly problematic. Um, Sasha and I today have a conversation mostly about sort of like the intersection of belief and secularism and faith and science and all these different things. And um, we do we talk a lot about control. We talk a lot about trust in those spaces, um, living in a place of sort of letting go within a, um, not knowing sort of like what happens when we die or, or um, whether or not astrology is real or whether or not uh, there is a God. Um, but I think we struggle with that, obviously, in many aspects of our life. Um, and my concern is not that we should take time to 
assess and reassess. But if any of that involves um, shaming or pathologizing our desires, then I think it can become really problematic. Um, If we remove ourselves from our current cultural societal norms and we put ourselves back into the place where we came from, which was a very sort of tribal, communal, hunter-gatherer lifestyle where we were in bands of um, not that many people, you know, being alone meant death. Um, being isolated, th- these were not things we could do to survive. And I think we think we're so influenced by, like, the post-agricultural space, the post-industrial uh, industrialization space, which in part I think is true, right? Like, our mothers, her mother, her mother, her mother, there were lots of generations that have gone back that have existed within that sort of more post-agricultural, patriarchal type of structure and uh, type of environment. However, when you look at that uh, historically, in terms of how long we've existed, our species has existed, that space is is microscopic comparatively to where we were at beforehand, which were hunter-gatherer tribes living very egalitarian lifestyles. So I'm inclined to think that even if we have some sort of ancestral uh, printing and patterning from post-agricultural life, we have even more prior to that. Um, And for me, I want to sort of, if I can, peel back the layers on all of that and go as far back as I possibly can. Um, So uh, when I see people say things like, I'm, you know, not gonna, even though I want it, I'm not going to have sex for this period of time, or even though I want it, I'm I'm not going to be in a relationship for this period of time. Um, The two issues I sort of see with that are, one, the proclivity to pathologize and shame desire. I think for us to think that we should be just as happy and just as fulfilled, totally alone, Um, as we are with one person or a group of people, I think is a bit misguided. I think for sure we need to have a certain level of self-awareness and a certain level of confidence and authenticity that our current culture and society has stripped from us in multiple different ways, very traumatically oftentimes. Um, But I do think there's some very, very authentic, innate desire that we have as humans to be supported um, by other people. And I think if we go too long saying that our desire to be intimate is somehow bad or shameful, then I worry that we don't allow just sort of the universe to, to do what it needs to do. So about nine months into my own sabbatical, <laughs> um, I had the opportunity to to become close to someone and intimate with someone. And I remember thinking like, oh no, like I made this commitment to myself and now I met this person and it seems appealing and it seems safe and it seems different and it seems like it could go somewhere. I had two choices. I could either say, "Hmm, maybe, you know what, I was wrong or maybe I wasn't wrong, but things have changed and I'm going to reevaluate my two years of being alone and see where this leads me. Um, 
or I could have stayed stuck in that situation. And I said, well, I made this commitment. I said two years. If this thing came into my life within that time, then it means it's not for me. And obviously, at the end of the day, like that's a decision we each have to make on our own. It's a decision that we need to touch base with in regard to our intuition, which comes from within us. It doesn't come from someone else's opinion. It doesn't come from the what whatever you think society wants you to do. That's something that comes totally from you. Um, and so maybe in a different time, in a different place, I would have made a different decision. But I sort of just chose... I chose to be wrong. I chose to change my mind. Um, and I've, you know, I've been sort of guided, uh, in that direction with multiple things. I think I've talked a lot on here. I got a really beautiful, um, had a really beautiful conversation with Mark Jones, who's been on the podcast. Um, and I sort of had told him a couple of years ago what I wanted to do in terms of, you know, wanted to buy land and create this whole community space. And, I had all these specifics worked out and what it was going to look like. And he just said to me, you know, very lovingly, like, I hope you don't hear this as patronizing, but you're quite young. And what I think might serve you better is just to hold on to the energy of the thing and not limit the breadth of possibility. And I think that was such beautiful advice um, that I repeat sort of ad nauseum on this podcast because I always think about it. I try to apply that same thing to my own life in every way. And when anyone, you know, a friend or someone that comes to me and wants to have a conversation about something, something that's out of their control, um, I tell that story because I think it's much more important to hold on to the energy of a thing than it is the specifics or logistics of a thing. Um, and, and that way it allows us to sit in a place where we realize we really don't have control and living a life where we're constantly two steps ahead of something is actually limiting. We actually get less done. We allow less in because we can't stop moving to the point where we can't see what's right in front of us. Um, and that's sort of what I see reflected in these, like, I'm going to do this thing for six months type of a thing. If it's just like, I'm going to challenge myself to do this, or, you know, there's specific goals that I'd like to achieve, that's all fine. But I really, especially when it comes to engaging in like toxic relationship patterns, and then getting mad at ourselves or punishing ourselves for doing that is, it's just, I don't think that serves us very well. Um, you know, I was a lot more kind of miserable living in this place of like, I need to fix this about myself. I need to correct this. I need to be somewhere that I'm not now. And I remember my therapist just being like, you know, you're not going to fix any of, if, if these issues that you're trying to fix are relational in nature, you know, you can still do a lot of work on your own self-awareness within a relationship. That's what you should be able to do. You don't like reach a marker and someone lets you through the door and then there's another journey, right? Like, yes, there's work you do relationally that you can't do on your own, but you're still going to be doing work on your own. And if something comes into your life that feels good and valid to reject that, I think can be pretty harmful and can take us further away from our intuition 
further away from our own self-knowing than just sort of engaging in the uncomfortable space of not knowing, engaging in the com- in the uncomfortable space of vulnerability and trust, even when you're afraid. So that's mostly what I have to say about that. Um, just trying to sort of merge these two ideas of, on the one hand, uh, trying to pathologize what I feel are really innate, totally normal, beautiful, lovable human qualities, which desire connection and approval and fitting in. And also the tendency we have to correct a problem by overcorrecting. Erin and I talked about this a lot last week when we were recording our episodes, um, you know, uh, mostly actually in relation to masculinity and femininity, that when we're hurt or when we're struggling with something, we think the option is to do the opposite thing. And I understand why we do that. You know, I I think it, it, it actually reminds me a bit of anger. I wrote something recently, which I may or may not have mentioned here, that anger is a bridge, not a parking lot. So if we think of that 180 degree switch like anger, right, we have to use the anger, embrace the anger in order to sort of be shot out of the cannon of whatever it is that's hurting us. But then it's just not enough to stay there. It's not enough to to stay in that space. I think that space is actually much easier. It's easier to stay in that um, oppositional space than it is to come back and try and find our way back into the middle in a way where we can sort of... Um, coexist within these sort of paradoxical worlds. So I'm going to stop talking now. Uh, Hopefully next time I come on here, uh, Horror Rapport will be out. Um, If you want to support this show or that show, um, the best thing that I, that you can do is to share it with your friends. Um, As I've said on here a million times, my biggest hope is to support people and generate community and help people feel less alone, feel less alone than I felt when I was going through a lot of these different transformational times in my life. Um, So if you hear something on any of the podcasts that I do that you think someone would appreciate, send it to them. And other than that, you can hit subscribe um, to the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, On the iTunes store, you can hit uh, five stars. You can leave a review All of those things help uh, the podcast show up in search results more, and it also helps if someone just, like, comes upon the show and they see that a lot of people have left a review or um, that it has a high rating, they're more inclined to listen to it. Um, So, again, really don't care for my own sake, but if you, like me, want to help this community grow and to bring more like-minded people together in terms of friendships, romantic relationships, sexual relationships any type of communal relationship. Um, Yeah, let's engage technology and rate podcasts. (laughs) Um, I think that's it. I think that's all I'm going to say. I hope you enjoy this episode with Sasha, and I will um, catch you on the other end and uh, play you out with a song. Take care, you guys. All right. I am here with Sasha Sagan, and I am super excited about this. (laughs) <laughs> Hi, I'm so excited I'm here. Um, 
Yeah, I have so many notes and so many things I want to talk about. So hopefully we can get to all of them. Um, normally, I feel like I plan this out and the conversation goes in a totally other direction, which is cool. too. I love that. That's <laughs> great, too. Yeah, totally. Um, I would love to start. I'm really interested. Uh, and people always ask me this about my podcast or anything I sort of create. Like, what was your journey in creating mm. it and sort of looking back? Like, was this always something you wanted to write and you were just filling in the pieces or... Now, when when you decided to write it and had the idea that you sort of looked back and was like, wow, that's why all those different things happen. And I can kind of see where it led. Um. That's a really interesting question. Well, it's so I like five years ago, I wrote an essay in the cut um, that was really about mortality. And if you're secular, if you if you believe that science is the pathway to understanding and the scientific method is a good way to sort of sort out, um, you know, fact from fiction. Um, and you don't, you know, you don't think that there's evidence for anything after this. Um, how do you deal with, with mortality? This huge question that's been so central to our species. Um, and, uh, it, it, it sort of centered around my parents' papers, um, went into the Library of Congress and there was this amazing, you know, ceremony really. And it was just like a really emotional experience for me. Anyways, I ended up writing about it and I, the reaction I got made me think, oh, well, there are a lot of people who are secular, maybe around my age, um, who are sort of wrestling with some of these questions too. And then I sort of started thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's a book here. And it, it took a few years and it sort of coincided with when, um, my husband and I started thinking about having a baby. Um, and you know, all these questions of like, well, you know, what are you going to celebrate with her? My, I come from a secular Jewish background. Um, my husband's family, um, his parents were, raised Christian. Um, but, and he, you know, he nor I really, uh, we don't believe, but you know, it's not like we're just going to like not have a party in December. Like what are you, what are you going to do? You know, and how are you going to kind of mark these important times? Um, you know, coming of age and, you know, all these things that you still do, um, even if you don't believe, but that historically the infrastructure has been religious. And so, at some point, I started thinking, well, if I have all these questions and I'm trying to navigate this, there's probably other people who are trying to navigate this too. And I, and so, um, it's, it became like the idea of like mapping out a year kind of, but also a life, right? right. They're all over the world. It's amazing how, how, I mean, it's like a, such a cliche, but we're all so alike, um, you know, and like around the world in these disparate cultures who have no way of communicating with each other. We all decided like birth, coming of age, death, changing the seasons, the solstices and the equinoxes, the phases of the moon, you know, these are really um, important and we should like, you know, talk about them and sort of figure out how we can honor these, these events and, and wrap our minds around them. And so, and the, the amazing part is, is those are all scientific phenomena, you know? And so it sort of brought me full circle to, to this idea that um, the stuff that we've been celebrating as human beings has a scientific basis when you peel back the, the specifics of mythology or lore or religion. 
So that's sort of how it, what it turned into. And then once I was writing it, I just was trying to balance like the elements that were memoir with the elements that were social history and try to get a sense of like how I could tell a story that was really personal, but also global. Sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I I do want to say before we like jump into the rest of the discussion too, I mean, I talk about this in a variety of contexts, but specifically within this, how problematic language is in this respect to, to refer to, like, I would love to hear your sort of uh, like elevator pitch about like what the book is proposing or Mm. um, suggesting, because I, in reading it and in sort of thinking about it and describing it, it's like, what is spirituality? What is belief? Like what is ritual? And I'm curious, I, I assume you kind of went through those same like frustrations and complications around what these things are. So like, how would you kind of define what it is that you are talking about in the book? So, I mean, so, okay, there's two, this is a really good question. So ritual, I think is, you know, it's essentially the way we process change, the ceremonies and traditions that we've created for ourselves or repetition of words or actions um, that we use to acknowledge or process some change. And maybe it's a really small change. Like, you know, there are all sorts of rituals that are like the beginning of the day or the end of the day, or I'm about to eat. I'm not eating yet. I'm going to say these words and I'm going to have dinner. And then there's changes like death and birth, you know, and these huge changes, um, coming of age, Someone goes from being a child to an adult and we have all of these rituals to process these changes and try to get a sense of, you know, just get a sense of the rhythm of this planet and being alive and how exhausting and impossible it is sometimes to wrap our minds around what it's like to be here, you know? Um, but in terms of what you're saying about language, I mean, spirituality and that word, like I wrestle with so much. I just had a conversation Um, with someone else about it and it's like you know the English language like you know it comes from a culture of of theism and so the words that we have um to describe that like thrilling spine tingling feeling that you get where the hair on your arms stands up and you're like oh wow that's crazy um you know that the, the, we don't have this like a secular words for those. I mean, even like the word magical comes from the magi, you know, all these words are come from religion, come from theism. Um, but I think they also describe the feeling of like, when you, I don't know, like see the picture of the black hole and, or you get us, mm-hmm. you know, that feeling of like, I don't know, like even, I feel like when people take like the DNA kit tests and then you're all of a sudden you have this map and you're like, I'm from there and my ancestors were like this. And they, you know, all of these things that are a product of science and how we can understand the world through science still give us that feeling. If if you, you know, I mean, it's funny because it's like also like these are like revelations you know if you see like a new image from the Hubble telescope or you you know get some clarity on some some mystery of some medical breakthrough you know what I mean people think it's so hard I mean I say it all the time like it's so hard not to say like thank god when somebody like is in a really serious medical situation and the doctors save them 
And, but it's science, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, what, I mean, if you, maybe you, if you may, if you're religious, you might believe it's also God, but like, if it's, I mean, the, no matter how hard you prayed, if you lived a thousand years ago and you needed antibiotics to save your life, that, you know, that wouldn't have worked. But now, even if you're, even if you're not religious, but you take the antibiotics, you know, it helps. And I just think there's so many things where we, like, it's so hard not to use the language um, of theism. Um, but, but it's because we're missing some words, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm cool with also just like redefining them, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, of course they evolve with time, yeah. like everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's like so funny. I feel like people, a lot of people come to me. I mean, and I sort of probably said this as well in my late twenties, sort of like coming to terms with my life and my twenties and the mistakes yeah. and like who I was and actually wanted to be. And, you know, it's always referred to as this kind of like spiritual awakening. And in my mind, I see it as like spirituality is just like a connectivity with what's around you. Right. Like I was in, sure. I was in Moab relatively recently. Oh yeah. It's never so been there beautiful before. There. Oh and my we God, watched it's so beautiful. the sunset and this one particular spot like reflected on. And I was just like, th- like there's nothing more spiritual than this right now. Just like watching the magnificence of nature. <laughs> yes. And even that, I mean, even like sunrises and sunsets, like that's an astronomical event. It's really hard to think of it like that, but that is also like a scientific event. And I feel like I completely who has not felt that way right. during a really astonishing, you know, looking at a really astonishing view of the sun, you know, of the sunset or the sunrise. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's like, uh, yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's totally fine to use those words in that context, but it's just funny sometimes when you're explicitly writing about being secular to not say, I mean, like sacred, like the, all those, like it's right. some, feeling like something's really holy, you know, all these things. It's just so, it lends itself so nicely to the same feeling, even when it's not religious. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, you know, you talk a lot about, like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, cause I do feel like humans have this sort of proclivity to believe, right? Like we want to believe in something quote unquote bigger than ourselves, which I recognize can totally be based in like science and nature is bigger than ourselves. And we're rooted within that. Um, there's this book, I don't know if you're familiar with it by, uh, Jesse Baring called the belief instinct. And I think it like sort of speaks to this about how we like, we want to be a part of something or connected mm-hmm. to something and believe in something. Um, and, and I, you had mentioned a, something in your book about like, why does the provability of something kind of remove the magic mm. from it? Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that's a clear question, but sort of speak to this like desire that we have to be a part of something and how that uh, often sometimes leads into having these like, you know, spiritual or religious belief structures. Right. Well, I think we really have a hard time as a species, like tolerating ambiguity. And that might, you know, and that might, and that's something like my parents wrote about and it's something I'm really interested in. And it's really hard. I mean, even just like the really minor, like I am waiting for whatever, a work email to come back and I can't like, and I just have to be like, well, I don't know what it's going to say or whatever you, when you're, I mean, I'm married now, but you know, like the like feeling of like, I texted him and he doesn't text me back. I'm like, yeah. ah, I can't stand this feeling, you know? Yeah. Um, and but like, um, 
I don't know. I think that there's something about that that's, it must have been an evolutionary advantage at some point to just be like, okay, well, we're just going to go with this um, solution or answer. And, you know, I mean, there's, there are these big philosophical questions that are just, it's, it, I mean, they torture us. Like what happens when we die? I mean, has anything ever been more of a like important, deep, impossible question that hangs over us? Um, you know, I think it's, that's the root of so much of what we've created for ourselves is our inability to sit with not knowing. And I think it's like, you know, I think it's a, it's a, intellectual and emotional exercise that's worth doing is getting comfortable with the idea that we don't have the answers and and that we don't need to put something a square peg sometimes in a round hole just to have something there and I mean that's so much of what the scientific you know method and scientific exploration is about um, and discovery is this idea of until there's evidence we're just going to hold that space open and when we get evidence we'll assess it rather than putting in what we want to be true um of course scientists are human beings and everybody does weird stuff and they you know we were all struggling with this kind of thing but i think that yeah i think that i mean my father like you know famously said i don't want to believe i want to know and i think there's something about that that's so powerful because throughout history the reality of what we've been able to discover is more astounding, in my opinion, and grander than than the stuff we've made up for ourselves. Um, and I think there's something really beautiful about about the idea of just like we have to wait and see where the evidence takes us. And there's some answers we might not get in our lifetime. Um, and there are other answers, like what happens when you die, which we'll all get in time, but that we're going to just practice waiting until until we have more more information and i think it's it's very difficult but i think it's worthwhile yeah yeah i think i talk a lot about control that I, that's like part of that that you know that mm, what does he yes. say or why isn't he texting me back that we get right. into that space of like holding on right. so tightly yeah and i wonder right. if part part of the point too is is the not knowing the like part of right. what pushes us forward sort of like however you want to define progress, but like forward movement in terms of human right. humanity, like right. what would we be doing if we just did know everything? <laughs> well, and I think there's also, right. And discovery and like, you know, trying to, trying to get to the next breakthrough, um, see the next, you know, horizon is, um, been a huge part of, of what's propelled us for sure curiosity really but also this idea I think that like well then when we're presented with information even when it directly contradicts what we have believed that the ability to say oh wow okay well I was definitely wrong about that okay the earth is a hundred percent going around the sun not the other way around my bad wow that was I'm completely mixed up and now I'm just going to face this new thing and see what else we can figure out rather than being like, you know, no, I'm sorry. It has to be this way. I'm unwilling to let go of this, um, you know, perspective. And I just think that like, that's also really hard and, but it's also something that's so important. And like, if we can all get more comfortable with saying like, 
we were wrong when we were wrong when we're presented with more information and that be less taboo. Again, I think at some point long ago, there must have been some evolutionary advantage to just like sticking to our guns no matter what. But I don't think it suits us anymore as a species and it, and it's worth sort of letting that fall away. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be skeptical. I, I mean, I think I feel like our hunter-gatherer ancestors were pretty open to learning, you know, and yeah, they had, they had belief. And I mean, I think part of, and I wanted to ask you about this as well. Like we both, you read about this a lot in the book. I was raised Jewish as well. Um, but mostly in a cultural way. I mean, I, I yeah. went, I went to Hebrew school and Sunday school, but it was all pretty, this was ridiculous to me. And my mother wasn't, <laughs> wasn't raised Jewish and she sort of was doing it because she wanted us, my brother and I, to sort of like hold on to the cultural aspect of it and the history. Well, right, 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 right. Um, um, and, you know, I, I, it's interesting. You said like, you know, when you take, I did the 23andMe thing too, and it's like yeah. 47% Ashkenazi Jew. Yeah, it's yeah. like no one's getting results back that's like Christian, like Protestant, whatever. You, right, um, right, right. And it got me thinking about how, you know, if that religions are, you know, post-agriculture uh modern religions and like that because we don't have a connectivity to culture sort of similar to maybe we have a feeling of being connected to Judaism that mm-hmm. we sort of like even in sporting events right like oh, we're so yeah. drawn to want to be a part of a group and a belief yeah. system um that I think if we sort of like dial it back and unpeel the layers that maybe that's like partially just because we're as humans living in a world that doesn't like fit our needs in an innate way like they used to. Well, yeah, I think we're in a sort of a transition and it's funny because we do, I mean, sports is such a perfect example of something that's like has all of these features where it's like, you know, I mean, it's so related to like hunting and like all of these biological things and you know you go into a bar or something and people are reacting like the stakes are really like life and death about this game that is being played by people that they don't know (laughs) and it's you just think wow we must really need this on some level and this feeling of being you know it must be so deep in us this attachment and yeah and being part of a group and I think yeah you know, we evolved to live in tribes and in, in groups. And I think what something that's so amazing is right now, because of technology, it's almost in a way making certain things more traditional. Um, because like, I don't know, I have the same best girlfriends I had growing up. And for most of history, we would have all lived in the same you know, tribe or shtetl, you know, Um, and we would raise our kids together and we would be all together every day until we died. And then the industrial revolution happens and right, you know, um, steam engines and all these things. And then it would have been like, we sent each other letters maybe sometimes and maybe never saw each other again once we moved. And now, even though we live all over the country, um, and, you know, our lives are 
you know, taking place in different places, we are in constant contact with each other. And we are having all these conversations and we're seeing pictures of each other's kids and FaceTiming and doing all these things where it feels like we are together, you know, much more often. And I think that that's something amazing that technology has made possible. And I think a lot of people who, you know, you might be the only person in your town who's interested in, I don't know, a particular kind of music or a particular kind of art or, you know, any number of things. But because of technology, you can, you know, in quotes, be with a whole bunch of other people who who you can form a little tribe with and a little group with. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. But in terms of belief, yeah, I mean, I think so much of it is identity. And I think when you're talking about like secular Judaism or, you know, so many people who, you know, are a member of a group or see themselves as, you know, maybe even a religious group and they want the sense of community and they want the sense of, um, you know, being part of a group. Um, and I think, yeah, we really crave that, but I also think we create it in all sorts of different ways. And there are all sorts of rituals that we don't see as rituals, um, but that we're all doing all the time. Like if you go to, you know, drinks on Thursdays after work with your coworkers and that's a steady thing, or you take whatever, a particular exercise class every week, or you have a poker night or all these things that we do and we, and we have this like rhythm to it. Um, there, there are ways in which we've created this for ourselves, even though it's not the same as, you know, everybody living within, you know, a very small area and eating every meal together and, and, you know, doing everything all day long together. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting too, like in the past when we didn't have as much scientific knowledge about like nature and biology as an example, right? There was Mm -hmm. that sort of mystery. There was that sort of like magic in it that I do think science has sort of like helped us to contextualize and define and put words to. Um, But you have this like beautiful quote uh, about like how themes of renewal and rebirth and resurrection and rescue from death are not religious ideas in conflict with nature, uh, but rituals inspired by the biology of plants and animals, which I just think is like such a, I mean, obviously, but I, I think, you know, upon, <laughs> upon thinking about it, like, right, of course, that's what it is. And it's just interesting that we've gotten sort of so far away from that, where these two things seem in conflict with one another. Um, right. And to sort of like right. merge our newfound knowledge and expertise and understanding with that same type of, again, problematic words, but like magic and like where we live. Um, Yeah. I'd love to, to just expand on that a little bit as well. Um, And whether you sort of had experiences in that respect of like coming to terms with, I mean, I'm sure you were just raised in this way because of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, there was no, again, this word spirituality is so loaded, but there was no conflict between science and spirituality and like our home because my parents thought, and I think my dad was like real, I mean, my parents together in their work and my dad as the person who's, you know, was on camera more, um, was really good at communicating this thrilling feeling that you can derive from scientific understanding that gives you the emotional stuff that, that we call spiritual. And yeah, I never really thought that they were in conflict. And I think for most of history, 
for human beings, they weren't in conflict, you know, and the more deeply we could understand like what the, like how phases of the moon worked or, you know, how the constellations moved or, you know, which plants bloomed when we, the more deeply we understood our gods or we understood, you know, what we, whatever the mythological or theological um, narrative was. Um, and then at some point those roads diverged um, and uh, they became two different things. But I just think, you know, one of the things that's so hard is when we understand something more deeply, there's something about it, and I don't know why, but we lose some of the awe. And I think that if we were, you know, if science education was better in this country, I think if people, you know, if there was more enthusiasm about about understanding, if people were less, like, uncomfortable and intimidated by the idea of science, and I think that's sometimes to do with just not getting a great, inspiring science teacher in school and it just feels hard and annoying and like you know that makes perfect sense but I just think that like you said um you know there's no that these the provability of something like studying something understanding it more deeply shouldn't take away from the pleasure um of it and like the the wonder and the spirituality again uh for lack of a better word and i think that there's a way that those things can sort of come back together um i hope yeah i think i mean i think partly we probably also take so much of this stuff for granted i think in a way when we were more connected yeah. with the land that we didn't um like i mean i I went to see the eclipse a couple of years ago, mm. like the full one drove all the yeah. way up to Idaho to see it. I mean that I know what that is scientifically, right? right. <laughs> Very right. In, in quite a bit of detail. Um, but that didn't remove the magic from it. It was right. a super spiritual experience, but perhaps different from me, you know, watching the sun rise and fall every day. And I'm not as connected to it as I would have been had, you know, I had to live off grid right. and on the land, right? Right. Um, like if it was like, oh, it's just total, totally pitch black the whole time <laughs> that the sun's right. out here. That's a totally different experience of watching the sunrise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like we would have a lot more sort of like reverence and appreciation to yeah. all of those yeah. sort of much more minor events. Right. But that are so central to our existence. And I think there's also just something in general, like, you know, when we learn whatever it is we learn as children, it's like, and everyone's sort of blase about it. You sort of like, you know, if you ever hang out, I have a two-year-old. It's like, if you ever hang out with like a little kid and it's like, they're like, oh my goodness, like, you know, freak out because like the moon is out in the daytime or something they're like that. They're just like, like perpetually I mean? on yeah, psychedelics. Yeah, totally. Yes, exactly. And I mean, like try going to an aquarium. It's yeah. like, just like completely like the miracle again, secular, yeah. secular miracle after miracle. And it's like, if we could, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, um, there's, there's some combination of like, you know, psychotropic drugs and, and, or maybe not at the same time, hanging out with toddlers. Um, <laughs> that is just like, can get us back to that sense of, but I mean, it's like, you know, just like an octopus you know, that's insane, you know, that we share a planet with that creature. And, you know, like all of these things, if we can sort of, you know, it's so easy to 
you know, when my daughter freaks out when she sees the moon, she just like, it's so easy to be like, yeah, it's the moon. It orbits us. It's there like all the time, you know, get used to it. But instead to like, let her lead and be like, this is really astonishing. This gorgeous rock that is like, you know, whatever it is, 239,000 miles up in, in, in the, in the sky. And like, sometimes it's enormous at night and it shines and sometimes you can barely see it. And sometimes you can't see it at all. And it's this unbelievably astonishing looking thing that's just hanging in the sky. You know, um, it's just like, if we could sort of tap into that and still understand, you know, why it orbits us and how the gravitational pull works and all those things. And, and the fact that it controls the tides. I mean, there's so much there. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It just reminded me, I had this really funny situation happen. I spent most of my summer in a van, like traveling around and camping. Wow. So very much in nature. Um, That's so cool. <laughs> it was. Um, and at some point, at near the end of the trip, I remember, and I've been very conscious of this. I have an apartment that sort of like looks out over the hills. And so I sort of, I'm able to track like when the moon rises every day mm. and the difference and, you know, how the phase affects when it's rising and obviously because it's relationship to the sun. And so <laughs> I was sitting and I just sort of proclaimed, I was like, it's just so amazing that like when there's a full moon that it rises at like just the right time at sunset. Like you see the yeah. whole thing, it's there. And someone was yeah. like, yeah, obviously like it's full because of its relationship with the sun. So when the sun sets and I was like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's still so cool. Yeah. And it was yeah. like merging of recognizing like those things can work in tandem and just to sort yeah. of allow both to coexist. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there's that, that, like, you know, it's, it, we really do have this sense of like, I don't know, like, it's so, it's like once we learn something, it's like we have this desire to be like, yeah, we know, you know what I mean? Where it, where it's just, and it's like just still years later, decades later after you learn something, if you can retain that sense of astonishment, I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah. Do you think too, you know, I've, I, over the past few years did a lot of reading around like grief. There's this really beautiful book called a sacred place in which to dwell, I think. And it's about like viewing oh. the earth as a sanctuary. Oh, uh, and I started thinking it was written quite a while ago, like 20, 30 years ago. Um, but it got me thinking about like this disconnection that we have from nature and the yeah. earth. And that I wonder if, part of what we're doing, I mean, I think you talk about grief in a slightly different context, but part of our sort of separation from nature and from biology and this like beautiful world that we live in is in part an avoidance of the grief associated with the fact that like our planet's dying. Um, yeah. Especially yeah. Yeah. And that nothing is forever and that we're each going to die and that everything is, you know, not eternal. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that there is something about that. And just our, I mean, it's amazing. Like if you live in a safe place and you have good health care and life expectancy is high, you are so much more removed from the idea of death every day, which is great. I mean, it's wonderful to live a long and healthy life and to not, you know, be in a place where there's a war or there's very high crime, you know, but I think 
that there's something about that that lets us live in like a little bit of a fantasy where we put death out of our minds. And I think really talking about it more openly in, in, um, society, um, in our lives and really like not making it like, you know, this thing that's like, you know, people often say like, you will bring up something to do with death and say like, well, not to be morbid. And I'm like, morbid is like, if you go and like hang around like crime scenes, you know what I mean? Like that's a morbid, like talking about death openly and saying like, you know, whatever, somebody's very sick or, or whatever it is, is not morbid. It's really healthy. And I think you're right. Um, a friend of mine who did, um, uh, like Q and a with me at the strand, um, was talking about her experience of, um, living she lives in new york and she was talking about her experience of living um in massachusetts in a small town while she was working on something and um she was saying that like in the fall just watching the earth like the plants change and die and um the the she said even the color of the ocean changed so dramatically um when she thought wow people who live in a place like this must have such a deeper understanding and connection and totally different relationship with the idea of death. But of course, that's how we all lived until very recently. And I do think there is something about that where we, you know, we've, if we're lucky, we don't have to face it every day. And, um, and I think that it's still incumbent upon us to, to not pretend it doesn't exist, even if, you know, you live in a, in a safe place and you have healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think too, it's like the overwhelm. I mean, I felt this Moab was such an interesting fucking place because you see time in such a mind blowing complex way, you know, like I'm at this level, but it's older, younger. Like you can just, I like could barely comprehend like the magnitude of time and my teeny like that the sliver of you know human existence within that structure would be as thin as a piece of paper you know like we're such a teeny, right. teeny microscopic little dot right um but I think that experience too and I've you know I'm now very open to it like like I said I think my sort of version of spirituality is just like this allowing myself to feel connected to my surroundings mm-hmm. in a really like you know, intimate way. Um, right. But certainly being in that environment and allowing ourselves to be reconnected with nature is overwhelming in terms of even like our responsibility. It's like, we're a, we're yes. a part of this, you know, we are not, yes. it's not us and nature. It's like, we're integrate, right. intricately intertwined. Absolutely. And I think that is so important. And that is something that, you know, is really um, you know, some religious traditions really celebrate that and really focus on that. And some religious traditions really try to separate human beings from the rest of, you know, the other species, um, on this planet. But yeah, I, I, um, Moab is such an astonishing place. And when I was there a few years ago, I just kept thinking, you know, again, language, it's like, 
you hear, you know, people say like, oh, this is God's country, especially about like the American West. And it's like, that's so, for, I mean, it's some mystifying things. It's like, oh, are there other places where he's right. like, I'm out at New Jersey? No, thank yeah. you. Nope. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, um, but, but I, but it's also like that feeling of like, this is so grand and astonishing. And of course, I don't think that it was created by God. I think that it was created by erosion, you know, and, um, time and geology and all of these amazing things. But it, but it's, that doesn't take away the awe for me and the slack jawed sense of like, this is, I mean, arches, did you go to arches? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you're like, this is so breathtaking and astonishing. And I just think, yeah, if we, we need a secular, way of uh, a secular version of that expression I don't know what it would be um but yes I think that that idea that it's that that we are part of it and that we're intertwined and that you know like um like so much of in terms of climate change and stuff like we have this idea that it's like pollution and stuff is like bad for the earth and it's like no it's we are one of the species that will be destroyed if we don't, you know, get a hold of ourselves. Um, but it's like the earth, I mean, the planet is, you know, it's just, it's, it will continue to revolve around the sun. It's us and a whole bunch of other species who are going to be, um, destroyed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to, two things. I, I think I, one, I'd love to hear a bit about how you view story and mythology within this, uh, frame of of thought because I we spoke about a bit before started we started recording that I was pretty into astrology for a while and I I am into it in an archetypal mythological way now predominantly right, right. and I'm sort of right. like uninterested with <laughs> much else around yeah. it like it, cool maybe maybe not don't really know for me it's just like if it gets me to think more about stories and understand things better through that realm in that way then I'm I'm down um so yeah you're sort of um it was nice to hear you talk about that as well sort of coming at it from a different angle um so I'd love to hear how that fits in. yeah so my position and I get in a lot of you know it's a sort of intense dinner party conversation. Um, my position is that I, I, there's, as far as I know, there is no evidence, um, to support the idea of astrology, but I think the urge for it and the reason it's so popular is because people really want to feel connected to their place in the universe and they want to feel like they are part of this vastness and I totally get that. And the wonderful thing is there are lots of scientific ways in which we really are connected and the cells of our bodies really did come from stars, you know, many, many light years away. And we really are, we really have evolved to love and require the the light of our, our nearest star and you know, there's all sorts of things like, I mean, circadian rhythms, the idea that we're connected that way biologically to the movement of our planet. There's all sorts of really beautiful stuff um, that I think can provide that. But in terms of storytelling, I mean, like I was obsessed with like um, Greek mythology, especially as a child, which I write about in the book. And like, I really interested in, you know, all sorts of like religious um, and I mean, you know, 
I guess I don't I don't know where the line is between like <laughs> mythology and religion, but all that stuff in that genre um, about like you know these stories of how we got here and what human beings have have what we've been telling ourselves and what we've found really important and beautiful and you know I'm I was a literature major in. Um, college, I get, you know, the concept of a metaphor. And I think that there are so many beautiful metaphors and important metaphors um, that we really derive a lot from. Um, And, you know, I think the way that we tell stories is fascinating. And I think there is something really deep in terms of like our, the way we crave stories. And like, I'm really interested in pattern recognition right? Well, human beings are great at pattern recognition. That's why you can, I'm making random sounds right now, but you can understand what I'm trying to say because we have agreed as a, as a group that some these sounds have meaning and you can recognize them when I'm saying them. Same with written words, right? It's just random squiggles that we have attributed meaning to, and we can recognize these patterns. And it's like when a baby is born, um, you know, it's a huge evolutionary advantage to recognize another a human face because you create this bond and so we're naturally selected to do that to find another human face and the more you do it you know the more bonds you create if you're a little human and then the more grown-ups are like oh yeah don't let her crawl into where the lions live and then you pass on your face recognizing genes to the next generation and so we're both, we're so good at recognizing patterns that we see them where there aren't any you know, and it's like, that's why like the, the, you know, right. There's so many instances of like we, the man and the moon and all these things where we think we see a face, but there isn't one. It's just that we're really good at finding faces, maybe too good, you know? And I think that there's something about pattern recognition and the way we tell stories that's connected. Um, and I think, and I don't think that's bad. I think it's, it's beautiful. I just think we need another way to navigate um you know which stories are like can be supported by evidence and which stories are just because um we're really interested in these topics and these are are some of the beautiful things or sometimes horrible things that we've created to explain them and that that still has value it's just not um the pathway to a like verifiable explanation all the time yeah and i mean uh one of my favorite myths also is the Persephone Hades. Yes. Thing. <laughs> um, yes. I, I mean, in that along with every other myth, I mean, I would, I wish more people were interested uh, or could just be immersed in the world of Greek mythology, because I think the benefit is in recognizing the many different ways in which those stories can be interpreted. Right. And like, right. A hun- I mean, every single one of us could have a different version and, you know, okay, right. well, this story is telling the story of how something created the seasons. Well, what if it was the seasons inspiring the story? You know, like there's just right. 700 different. And I think maybe for me, like that's what I love about it so much and why I love ambiguity and nuance is because it's just kind of hard. Like it, there's there's a beauty in that, even though it might seem unsettling to sort of like not yes. know. It, yes. To me, I've just fully embraced it to the point where like knowing feels uncomfortable at this point. And, yeah. And <laughs> I think that there's something about, especially when we learn like mythology, Greek mythology, let's say in school, um, it's like 
it's, and I write about this in the book a little bit too, but it's like, it's totally socially acceptable to like talk about it as a reflection of the fears and hopes and concerns of the ancient Greek people. I think because, I mean, so far as I know, nobody is still very devoutly worshiping Zeus. No one's offended, you know, (coughs) excuse me. And so I think, there's something about that. It's like that we can, if we can extrapolate that to other things, it's like, well, let's just like, if it's okay to say that this is like the Greeks created this because this was what they were worried about and they were um, interested in. And this is, you know, and all the like peccadillos and romances and all these, you know, human deity um, relationships and things that are happening and, and also later in Rome too. It's like, well, that's about us. That's not about how the universe really came to be or um, how, you know, the weather or the the seasons or, you know, disasters um, were, were being avoided or created of upon you know above Mount Olympus it's it's about it's about what the fears of the human beings were and I think there's something really valuable in using that lens on some some other elements of culture that are still more actively um believed yeah I mean and that we can take those same stories and apply them to our current state and circumstance and like learn and grow and evolve and help in a myriad of different ways based on those same yeah Yeah. Um, So one last sort of concept I'd love to address is about dogma. Um, Mm. I think there's a definitely, I think um, within religious and spiritual circles, there gets to a point, especially if you're having a debate and I've totally done this as well, where you just kind of stop and say like, well, you know, like that's just how it is. Or like, you don't understand or like there, you don't need to go any farther. Um, Having said that, I also think that happens within the space of science. You know, I think there are some interesting uh, situations where like, oh, no, we're not talking about that anymore. Like, nope, off the table. Like, I'm not even willing to engage in a discussion around that. Or how could we do that better? Or maybe there's something we didn't understand before. Like, maybe that's true, but there's another piece of it that we're going to build onto that. Um, And I loved that you brought that up in your book, that like the constant questioning need to apply um within the sort of like secular worldview um yeah just talk a little bit about that as well yeah I just think I don't know I think it and I think it really starts from like early childhood where like you know I mean my parents were amazing in like oh any question I asked like they were like so there for it and they you know, if they didn't, like, if I asked them a question that they didn't know the answer to, it was like, I had done something really great. Um, and you know, like I write in the book about like looking things up in the Britannica, cause I'm going to be 37 this week. And so that's what we had. Um, I, you know, was like, um, this like, you know, again, for lack of a better word, like holy, um, ritual you know where it was like we went to this text to find out more answers and I think that like because I never got a like well that's just how it is or um you know uh sort of like I never got like discouragement from asking questions um 
and that like, and because my parents really believed that like, if something can't stand up to scrutiny, well, then you have to like reassess it. And I think if we can encourage kids to like really ask difficult philosophical questions and get comfortable with sometimes saying, I don't know to them. And sometimes it's, I don't know because I don't have my phone in front of me, so I can't Google it, but we'll find out in a minute. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, I don't know because nobody knows. Um, And sometimes it's, I don't know. Um, you know, because it's, because it's, there's disagreement and there's, you know, and your aunt thinks this and your dad thinks this and, and, you know, this is a really difficult topic that we human beings struggle with for generations. Like, I think it's okay to say all of those things and just sort of encourage people to like ask questions and ask questions of themselves. And of course, nobody's perfect and we all have stuff that we cling to or feel like, how dare you bring that up, you know, or whatever. Of course, we're human beings. Like, But the idea that the goal is to be able to have more debate and more questioning and more discussions, not in like a hostile way, but as an intellectual exercise and as a way of understanding ourselves and each other and that it's okay, you know, like you sometimes like in some families, it's like, oh, well, we can't discuss you know, politics or religion at the Thanksgiving table or whatever. And I'm like, well, then what else is there to talk about? <laughs> you know, like to me, I'm like, that is like, that yeah. is like, and you know, I mean, of course you don't want to get into like a screaming match <laughs> and ruin the dinner, but it's like, how are we supposed to make any progress if we can't talk about these things? And how are we supposed to make progress as individuals? And how are we supposed to make progress as a species or as a culture, if we can't talk about the really difficult things. And, you know, I think the other thing is taking a, like, if we could make it so that saying like, I was wrong, you bring up a really good point. I mean, that's the thing about science. Like if you disprove the like widely held position and you have like, you can say, no, actually like the earth is going around the sun or whatever, you know what I mean? Like you have done something really great, you know? And I think that even if you make it, you know, the make it so that the people whose shoulders you're standing on are like, you know, discredited in some area, it's like, this is a positive thing. And I think if we could take some of that into our daily lives and, and if people could say, wow, I was wrong, now I see this and I understand and be celebrated for that instead of it being like, oh, well, see, you were wrong, you know, and sort of like it being considered a negative thing. I think we could get so much further and if we could encourage each other, but it also depends, you know, going back to the Thanksgiving table, you have to be in a place where you emotionally, you know, feel safe enough that like, if you do say, okay, I was totally wrong, everybody's going to be like, okay, great. Instead of like, be really mean about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think sort of just like framing the questioning, not in terms of needing to find the answer, but in just sort of like being okay, living in the space of the question and like in right. this really valuing the journey right. rather than where it's going to lead you. Right. And, and, and I think that if, if you make the goal to understand what the other person's perspective is sometimes and then you know clearly explain yours um rather than putting anyone down I think you can get a lot further and I think it's just like disagreeing with someone 
is not like attacking them, you know? And I think, I mean, unless you're doing it in a really mean way, but just saying, I don't see it that way. I don't believe that is not an, an attack. And I feel like sometimes it's, it's seen that way and that's makes things more difficult. I love that this conversation like ended in this, like how we communicate with one another, because I feel yes. like this issue, this like religion versus science is like one of the main ways in which we don't know how to communicate. And it's right. so needed, I think, to explore all of these ideas in a more complex way that's going to help all of us across the board. Yeah. <laughs> and just uh, like, like awesome. we were talking about before, more, more nuance, like the, yeah. the ability to have like say oh well you think this so you're this and just like actually like get into the weeds and understand you know the nuance and not see things as so one-dimensional totally (laughs) that's a good note to end on but before we do um I ask everyone who comes on the show first of all where can people go to learn more about you and your book and also if you could recommend one book to everyone who was listening that either has something to do with this conversation. I know that's just like so hard. Um, And if you want to name a couple, that's fine. No, no. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Well, so, so my book is called for small creatures, such as we rituals for finding meaning in our unlikely world. And it's available everywhere you get your books. Um, and um, if you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Sasha Sagan. Um, and then a book that I would recommend to everyone, um, you know, so other people have probably said this. Um, okay, I'm going to do two. Okay. Other people on this show have probably recommended this, but Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of the best books of the last decade and everyone should read it, especially, um, you know, white privileged people who don't understand. Um, and so I would highly, highly recommend that. And then I'm going to recommend um, two books by my parents, um, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors and The Demon Haunted World, which I think both really, they're, you know, written, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago and they really stand up and, and apparently in some ways are still really pertinent to the issues that, that we're dealing with um, on this little planet. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you. This was so fun. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, If you did, I highly recommend uh, grabbing a copy of Sasha's book for small creatures such as we. Um, I personally binged, uh, listened to it. I don't listen to audiobooks that frequently. I really like to hold books in my hand. And I have her book, uh, but I didn't have enough. I knew I wouldn't have enough time to actually read the whole thing. And she read the audiobook herself. So if you're an audiobook type of person, I highly recommend that. I listened to it all in about a day and a half. Um, kind of cool how you can do that with books that normally take lots of time and focus and concentration. I do still prefer that, though, to be fair. Um, today, I am going to play with a song by Leif Voljebek. I have played, a, I think, one or two songs of his on the podcast so far. One pretty recently, I believe. Um, he just released a new album called New Ways that I've been waiting for for months. Um, 
I just heard this song for the first time this morning. Uh, this always seems to happen to me where I don't know what song I'm going to play on the show, and then I just hear a song, and it's absolutely perfect. Um, call that science or divine intervention. Doesn't matter. Um, so the song is called Wait a While, uh, and I think speaks really beautifully to what I was speaking about in the intro and what Sasha and I spoke about in, re- in regard to um, ambiguity and sort of needing to touch base with our intuition to f- figure out what we feel about a thing and figure out what we're ready for or if we're not ready for something or if we're ready for it but we're just fearful of it um the lyrics to this song are pretty great um some of them that I like are uh you gotta run with the devil before you see it so you can come back later just to free it you gotta be steel-eyed and driven you gotta be hard and unforgiving You gotta run those dogs in the rain and the snow till you turn where it is you need to go. And when you arrive, you will praise it. Every hair on your arm, I will raise it. But you're gonna have to wait a while. And yeah, I think sometimes we have to wait. We have to feel it out. We have to see. Sometimes we have to jump. Sometimes we have to trust. Just hold on to the energy of a thing. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't, don't. And on that note, enjoy the song, and I will talk to all you lovely, lovely people next week. Bye. You gotta be humble, babe, for a while. You wanna find it. You gotta stumble for a while. You wanna get behind it. You gotta run your mouth off. You gotta eavesdrop when it don't seem right You gotta run with the devil Before you see it So you can come back later Just to free it Gotta be steely and driven. You gotta be hard and unforgiving. You gotta run those dogs in the rain and the snow till you turn where it is you need to go. When you arrive, you will praise it. Every hair on your arm, I will raise it. You're gonna have to wait a while.